Our text this morning is found in the prophet Amos, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and then chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel come. Pass over to Kalna and see, and thence go to Hamath the great, Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are they better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the evil day and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, says the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Hear this, you who trample upon the needy and bring the the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? Amos was a shepherd in Tekoa before he was called by the Lord to be a prophet in Israel. And even though Tekoa is just a small town in the southern part of the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, nevertheless, Amos was called to speak his word from the Lord in the northern kingdom of Israel, especially to its capital city, Samaria. His ministry happened during the reign of Jeroboam II, and that means that since it was probably near the end of that 41-year reign, it took place, say, 40 to 60 years prior to the captivity of the northern kingdom when they were swept away by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Now, in retrospect, as we look back upon the delivery of this message of Amos to the northern kingdom of Israel, we can see that basically it had no effect on the people and the judgments, in fact, that were predicted came true. And from that, at the very outset, we learn that the word of God may not always have the effect that we would desire. But we must be faithful, like Amos, and speak what we are given by the Lord to speak and trust that he has his hidden promises and purposes In everything that he does. And they are good. 
If an entire biblical book can be preached in vain to a whole nation, then think it not strange if your witness now and then falls upon a deaf ear. The justification for speaking the word of God is not the certainty of converts. It is the certainty of the call of God. In the words of Amos 7:15, the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. That's all you need. But since Amos' word is in Scripture and has been preserved for us 2,700 years later, perhaps we do well not to pass judgment on the final success of this word. Perhaps we shouldn't pass judgment simply on the effect it had on the cows of Bashan, whom we'll meet in a moment, but on the sinners of Bethlehem. Then we'll know whether the word of God has returned to him empty. The book is too big this week to move through section by section and give an exposition. So what I'd like to do is is this. I'd like you to picture the book of Amos like a tree with roots and a big trunk and a very few branches. The trunk of this book is the proclamation of impending judgment. The roots feeding into that judgment are the sins of the people and the very few little branches coming out the top are the calls to conversion or repentance on the basis of the judgment that's coming. Now, what gives Amos his very special power and impact even today is the way he uprooted those sins and held them up to the sunlight for all to see. So that's where we want to focus, on the roots of this tree. But, first of all, the trunk. It's a big, dark, unavoidable trunk in the prophet of Amos, namely the relentless prediction that judgment is going to fall upon the northern kingdom of Israel. And after our message from Joel and from Zephaniah, you shouldn't have any difficulty identifying what the name of this coming day is. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and Lean with his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Same theme in Amos as in Joel and Zephaniah. In chapter 1, verse 2, a note is struck that gives the tone to the whole book. The Lord roars from Zion. That's the keynote of the book, and it's sustained throughout the whole prophecy. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, you hear this awful warning, which you've read perhaps on the side of roads, but they sometimes lose the impact there. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. 
That's the trunk of the prophecy. The terrible day of the Lord is coming. If you meet him as a sinner, you will meet him roaring like a lion out of Zion. And if you turn to escape, you will meet him like a bear robbed of her cubs. And if you run into your house, you will meet him like a rattlesnake upon the windowsill. There will be no escape for the unbelievers on the day of the Lord. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. But what gives this trunk such a large, imposing, powerful weight and strength in the book of Amos is the portrait of the God who is going to judge. Three times, Amos simply pauses to look at God and see who he is. And I want you to see those three little hymns, we might call them, in this book. Chapter 4, verse 13. For lo, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. He just wants to identify who this God is. He makes mountains like Play-Doh and a mighty wind with a whisper. He knows every thought of your mind before it comes onto your lips. He governs the working of the solar system and he steps from the Appalachians to the Rockies in one single Stride. Do you want to meet that God roaring out of Zion or rejoicing over you with gladness? Second, chapter five, verse eight. Just to ponder God, he pauses. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkness and darkens the day into night who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. In other words, prepare to meet the God who builds in the space constellations like tinker toys and spins the earth in his hand like a top and beckons for a tidal wave like a man whistles for a dog. And in chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, one last pause to let the Israelites know who it is with him, with whom they have to do. 9.5, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord, it is, is his name. In other words, as if to say, the God for whom you must prepare in judgment, the Lord who will be coming on the day of the Lord is the creator of the universe. What will it mean when the creator says, as he does here in 9.4, I will set my eye upon them for evil and not for good. And so the large, strong, 
unavoidable trunk in the prophecy of Amos is the fierce judgment of God that is coming upon the northern kingdom of Israel, most immediately in the form of the Assyrians and finally in the last day in the wrath of God. The day of the Lord is darkness and not light for those who have loved darkness. The creator and ruler of all the earth will roar out of Zion against all his enemies. So prepare to meet your God, O Israel. But now the most important question I think we can ask in view of that trunk is why? Why is it coming? What are the roots of this wrath in the book of Amos? There's one main taproot, and then coming out from that taproot, I see three other roots. Together, they all feed the wrath of God and make it hot against Israel. The taproot is that the people have forsaken God. And the the three roots that come out from the taproot are, one, addiction to luxury. Two, indifference to dishonesty. And three, hard-heartedness against the poor. So let's look at these. First, the taproot. Israel has forsaken God. In chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, Amos describes five acts of chastisement that the Lord performs in order to draw the heart of Israel back from all the False allegiances, but the the result is the same every time. Verse 6, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 8, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 9, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 10, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 11, yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Could he make it any clearer that the tap root of the wrath of God is that they have forsaken the Lord? Their hearts are far from him and they need to return. They are running after many other things and they are not full of God. Well, how does that express itself here in Amos? Very interesting. First, the most obvious way in idolatry. Chapter 5, verse 26. You shall take up Sakuth, your king, and Kaiwan, your star god, your images which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will take you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. That's obvious. But the problem in Israel is much more subtle than idolatry. There are ways by which the rejection of God expresses itself that we would not ordinarily think are ways. For example, their sexual behavior. Scarcely gave they a thought to God Almighty when determining with whom they would lie down. It says in chapter 2, verse 7, A man and his father go into the same maiden." So that my holy name is profaned. You see the connection there? At the root of all sexual misconduct is an indifference 
to the honor of God's holy name. There are many people today who in the Lord's house talk as if God is real. They've learned all the religious language. But in their sexual lives, they never ask the question, is what I am doing an offense to God Almighty? Or does he delight in my behavior with this woman and with this man? Is he smiling upon us right now? They bracket him. And that kind of compartmentalization of God is a forsaking of God and a preparation for judgment. Here's another way, much more subtle yet, that they have rejected God. They go to church and sing and play violins. That is a forsaking of God. Listen to this carefully now, because we must grow up into Christ and make careful distinctions. Bethel and Gilgal are the centers of worship in the northern kingdom. In chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the Lord uses biting sarcasm to indict the hypocrisy of the people in worship. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for so you love to do, O house of Israel, says the Lord your God. And then to make his point perfectly clear, flip over to chapter five, verse twenty one. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and cereal offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted beasts, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos is a devastating book for people who give token attention to God through assemblies and songs and whose hearts are much more genuinely engaged with sports and business and family and hobbies. If your outward acts of worship in this building are just a mask to maintain respectability before those who know you, while all the while your heart is really attached to the world, God hates your worship. He despises our solemn assembly. That's the kinds of distinction we must make. So, the taproot of Israel's sin is her heart being far from God. Even when it is cloaked with tithes and free will offerings and songs and harps and solemn assemblies. 
So when Amos calls for conversion and repentance in chapter five, verses four through six, the first thing he says, this is the first call to conversion and the most important one. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me. And live, don't seek Bethel, don't seek Bethlehem. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. Gilgal shall go away into exile and Bethel shall come to naught. Seek the Lord and live. In other words, get real with God. Don't equate him with places of worship and acts of religion. He's real. He's a person. Seek him. Know him. Have dealings with him. Return to the Lord, lest his fire be kindled in Joseph. And in the house of bread, Bethlehem. But Israel did not return to the Lord. And therefore, out from this taproot, there grew three very ugly roots. Namely, addiction to luxury, indifference to honesty. And hard-heartedness against the poor. Israel failed to give heed to the warning that had been given by God to Israel at the brink of the Jordan before they came into the land of promise in Deuteronomy 8 where he said, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord... Your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as at this day. And if you forget the Lord, your God, I solemnly warn you, you shall surely perish. But in Amos chapter six, verse 13, listen to the indictment from the prophet. You rejoice in low debar. That is a thing of naught. You rejoice in a thing of naught and say, have we not by our own strength taken Karnaim for ourselves? God had allowed Israel to prosper and now her prosperity is her destruction. She fell in love with her luxury and boasted in her strength and wealth. And Amos gives God's response in verse eight of chapter six. The Lord God has sworn by himself, says the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. When God ceases to be the treasure of our hearts. Very likely. Ninety five percent of the time today, our hearts will become attached to the pleasures and the comforts of this world. And unless God graciously intervenes, we will be taken captive to the addiction of comfort and we will become indifferent to honesty and hard hearted against the poor. Let's see how this is displayed for us in Amos. Listen, chapter six, verse one, how he slams the lovers of comfort in his own day. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. 
Then down to verse 4. Woe to those who lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon couches. Then down to verse 6. Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest of oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Does that refer to anyone today in America? People who live for comfort and do not ever grieve for the lost. People who are experts in loving themselves, but haven't thought the first thought of how to love their neighbor as they devote so much energy to loving themselves. What governs your getting and spending? What governs your getting and spending? Is it the desire to fill your little three score and ten with as much comfort in this life as you can? Or is it the God-given desire to spend yourself to do as much good for others as you can? For the glory of Christ. There's a warning In chapter 3, verse 15, that hits so close to home in middle-class Minnesota, I hesitate to read it. But I will, since it's here. The Lord says, I will smite the winter house and the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end. Take heed. Guard your hearts diligently, lest you find yourselves enslaved to comfort and addicted to luxury. And it doesn't stop there. It never stops there. If it only stopped there, we could shrug it off. The love of comfort always leads to dishonesty and hardness of heart against the needy. Always. It may be that Amos was a poor shepherd from Tekoa. Whatever the reason, he hits this hate of the poor with all his might. This is the root that is most ugly in Amos's eyes. Let's look at it. The first word he touches on to Israel, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, goes straight to this issue. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. They that trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Then in chapter four, verse one, Amos gives a graphic picture of the wealthy women. In the upper crust of the Sumerian culture, they're in the capital. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are in the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. Then in chapter 5, verse 12, he shows how corruption and callousness mingle together. I know how many are your transgressions, how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. And then finally, chapter 8, 
verses 4 through 6. Here we see how religious hypocrisy, love for wealth, dishonesty, and hard-heartedness against the poor all combine into one ugly root of wrath. Hear this, you who trample upon the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath be over that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the refuse of the wheat. This prophet was angry. He was inflamed with angry against the rich lovers of luxury who trampled the heads of the poor. These are the roots of the wrath in his day. They are the roots of the wrath of God in our day and in the church in America. Rebellion against God, even when it cloaks itself in church attendance. Addiction to luxury and comfort. Indifference to honesty in all of our business affairs and at home. And hardness of heart against the poor, whether in our neighborhood or our political policies. And now... There are only a very few branches. Amos does not think there's much hope for this people, but a little. Verse five, verse six of chapter five. We've seen it already. Bless his heart. He does say, seek the Lord and live. I would not have you die. But. Lest we spiritualize that and say, oh, I have sought the Lord. I have sought the Lord. Just go down to verse 14 and 15. Here's Amos' call to conversion in its fruit, not just its root. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil, love good. Establish justice in the gate. And then the last hope. It may be that the Lord of God, the Lord God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Oh, to have a church full of people who don't give a rip whether you live in comfort, but hate evil. Love good and establish justice in the gate. People who feel grief and indignation, not just when your right to get rich is jeopardized by some political influence, but who feel that same indignation and grief when children starve and when anybody dies without salvation. Now, let's close by asking the very practical questions. How do you establish justice in the gate? What does it mean in America to have, to have justice established in the gate? I don't think it means a society without distinctions. I don't think heaven will be a society without distinctions. It will be a society without oppression. No more exploitation. No more small print. In the contracts, no more price manipulating monopolies, no more Marie Antoinette's who say of the poor, let them eat cake 
No more Robin Hoods who steal from the rich. No more central socialist committees who hold a gun to your head and tell you how much that you've earned belongs to your neighbor. No more fat capitalist cats who walk by Lazarus every day on their way to work off their latest five pounds of wine on their silver running machines. No more false advertising. No more slipshod workmanship at $30 an hour. When every wage is fair, every contract is plain, every agreement is kept, everyone striving for the advancement of his neighbor and not just himself. All for the glory of God, then justice will be established in the gate. And how shall we do that? How shall we at Bethlehem bring that about? Two ways. By striving to produce men and women whose hearts are aflame with the righteousness of God. And second, by struggling together to think through and discover what elements of this righteousness should be enacted into civil law? When a slumlord gouges a Laotian family in Philip's neighborhood, it is not necessarily because the laws of, of Minneapolis are bad. It is most definitely because the man is bad. Therefore, we must guard ourselves against the naive idea that the person who is working hard for rent control at City Hall is working harder to establish justice in the gate than the people who are working to convert the hearts of wicked men so that their hearts and their business practices ring with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If America is going to stay free, and by the way, that is not the main goal of the church, but we hope a happy byproduct. If America is to stay free, it will not be because Christian right-wingers have pushed through a prayer amendment or Christian left-wingers have pushed through more subsidies for housing and jobs and health. It will be because the salt of the earth and the light of the world have exerted such a profound spiritual effect on the heart and soul of this nation that men and women feel guilty and pangs of conscience when they gouge refugees, when they break contracts, when prices are inflated, when workmanship is shabby, when babies are intentionally aborted. Constraining civil laws are necessary in a fallen world. But, folks, unless the spring of the river of evil that flows out from the heart of humanity is dealt with, that river will bust through every legal barrier we could possibly ever erect and sweep away the world with injustice. One group and one group only can address that spiritual need in this world. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. 